Well, as uh, you're no doubt uh, aware, every Sunday, think about this, every Sunday in thousands of churches around the world, hundreds of millions of people, maybe more than a billion, say the very prayer that Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him to teach them how to pray. It's a prayer that includes the words, your kingdom come. We say it every Sunday here in the context of receiving the body and blood of Jesus. Your kingdom come. The proclamation of and the teaching about this kingdom was as central to Jesus' message and frequent in his vocabulary as anything else. He talked about the kingdom a lot. It framed his calls to repentance, his works of divine love among the down and outs, and it framed his promises of a liberated future. And when asked what Jesus' message was all about, most people, understandably, would probably say love. Yes. But also, I think you have to include the kingdom. It's constant. The refrain is continual. And it rises, especially in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom is mentioned roughly 50 times in Matthew's gospel alone, 11 of which are parables, seven of which are in chapter 13, and six of those begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, what is it like? If we're going to pray for this kingdom to come, it's probably pretty important for us to reflect on this a bit from time to time, uh, you know, to know at the very least what Jesus meant by the kingdom. How does it come and how is it received? What challenges does it face? How does it compare to earthly kingdoms? And so on and so forth. We should probably be asking ourselves what we mean when we pray those words every week. And when I was pinning those words, I couldn't help but think of the infinitely quotable film, The Princess Bride. I mean, you've seen that. When the mercenary kidnapper, Vizzini, he keeps shouting, inconceivable, in these faltering attempts of his to evade Princess Buttercup's mysterious rescuer. But finally, his otherwise patient, swashbuckling Spaniard partner, Inigo Montoya, he muses and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So if we, we want to align our meaning and we talk about the kingdom with that of Jesus' meaning, I think a great place to begin is with the petition that immediately follows in that very prayer he gave them. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a pretty important clue, qualification. Your will be done here as it is done there. At so many turns in Jesus' ministry, we find out, though, that the kingdom of heaven is a confrontation. It cuts across the grain of other wills. It cuts across the grain of other ways of not only the political domains of Rome and of Israel, but even the personal and the cultural and religious sensibilities of his day. And we find out it cuts across the grain of the sensibilities of our day, too. And yet, as it contests and as it's contested, it's not coming in the way that people might expect. It's not playing by those rules. It's not like other kingdoms. A few weeks ago, I was mountain biking uh, with a Buddhist friend of mine who I've mentioned before uh, named Dustin, and we were talking about American politics and Christianity, you know, the fun, the fun sorts of things that, you know, right now... Uh, that, that intersection can be sort of fraught, especially if you're talking to a, a non-believer. And he asked me this, he said, do you think maybe Christians have elevated Jesus beyond what he intended? 
that's a great question. A little hard to answer while I'm pedaling up a mountain and my heart rate is at about 155. But the, the answer came, you know, sort of gradually. And I said, well, I think yes and no. I answered, no, Jesus clearly never intended Christendom, this kind of top-down theocracy in his name that offers Christians the levers of power and puts unbelieving people under the church's rule. No, I don't think that's what Jesus intended. That kind of elevation. In fact, he said his kingdom is not of or from this world and that its leaders are servants. They're not sovereigns. But I did say this. Yes, there's no denying that Jesus saw himself as the unique source of real life and of flourishing. The singular source. Bread from heaven. And so I wanted to give him sort of some of the language of Jesus about this. I'm the bread of heaven. Come from the Father. I'm living water. You'll never thirst again. I am the way, I'm the truth and the life, the way to the Father. And, it, and I said his exaltation as this kind of Lord actually began with the same people who sat around the campfires with him for three years and heard his teaching. And they all seemed to come away with a complete, you know, with, with a, a shared understanding. And if they had come away with a complete misunderstanding, after all that time with him, it would have seemed odd, especially given how contested this message of the kingdom would be as they carried it forward. So yes and no. And I think this is why it's important for us to think about what do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of heaven and of Christianity and of its effect and influence in the world and in our own hearts. So today let's just take a few minutes to reflect on what's before us, on these parables of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want us to back up to all of them. We, it wasn't preached here, but we got all of Matthew 13. Um, in the last few Sundays. Let's back up to that, review what Jesus has already told the crowd who are sitting uh, on the bank of Lake Gennesaret while he's in a boat and he's maximizing the acoustics of the lake so that everyone can hear him. And he first tells them the story of a farmer who throws seed on four different kinds of ground. So the kingdom is like, he says, in each case, the outcome is understandably different. And he's going to explain this parable in detail in verse 18. The seed is the message of this kingdom. When some people hear it, when they hear what he says, his word, it falls on hard soil. It gets gobbled up. They roll their eyes and they move on. Fair enough. We see it all the time. But the message also lands on a shallow layer of receptivity. It's received kind of quickly. Many people think of themselves as religious or spiritual, and so there is some level of receptivity, and it's often more of an accessory, we might say. A form of, it takes the form of, of moralism often, like the do's and don'ts, or of sentimentalism, you know, like this is how we should feel, or it's a kind of a spiritualism. But, the, but what Jesus says is it can't withstand trouble or persecution. It's not very useful when life gets hard and you have to really stand for it. Jesus says. It's vulnerable from the outset. No roots can form from a very conditional receptivity. Does that make sense? This is what he says about the second kind of soil. The seeds of the kingdom also land among competing values. He compares that to growing up among thorns, thorny distractions. Worry is controlling. Wealth is deceptive. The result is a faith that can't grow. He says it's not fruitful. It's distracted. It's kind of insular, and it's impotent. And then finally, the fourth kind of soil, when the message falls on this deeper receptive soil, it flourishes. 
The one who receives, and Jesus says, understands the word, is the one who is fruitful. And this, with this word understand is important. The Greek word for understand is synaimi. Jesus employs this twice when he's explaining, when he's talking about this kind of soil and receptivity. And it literally means this. It means to bring the parts together. A coherence happens with what you're hearing. It connects with your life, with your framework. You take this seed into the soil and it makes something comprehensive. It's what we might just call a life. It becomes your life. So that's the first point about the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is total. It's central. It requires depth. It requires unconditional receptivity, inspiring what we might say is a very comprehensive, very coherent. It applies to everything. It's not over here, our spiritual stuff over here and our natural stuff over here. It's everything. It gathers all the parts into one, a coherent life on its terms. And then in verse 24, Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And we're going to get to the ones that are in our reading today, but let's talk about these others. This is verse 25. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. I won't read the whole parable, but suffice it to say, as the kingdom comes, it will have to contend with inauthenticity at best and even sabotage at worst among the people of the kingdom. Over time, we've called this the mixed nature of the church, some scholars have. We see it in every era. And as Jesus explains this parable to his disciples, he tells them they're not going to be able to completely untangle this reality in their time. It's nice to know this in advance, I would think, to know how to pray, to know how to entrust the church itself to Jesus. But one day Jesus is going to untangle this. His language is pointed and it's prophetic. The weeds will be separated from the wheat. So, sum up those two, first two parables. They tell us that the kingdom of heaven is coming amid some real and even dramatic diversity and complexity. It's not neat. And it will be threatened by everyday things, by worries, by ambitions, by distractions, by temporal pleasures. The kingdom will have to contend even with itself. The manner in which, the way in which we walk it out. The church will be plotted against, he says, even from within. So in the meantime, what do we do? What do we do with that? We pray for the kingdom to come in spite of this. To come authentically and fully. To come in our own lives in spite of conflict, in spite of contradiction. We pray this with a sense of vigilance and with deference to God. Knowing how much we need the will of God at work in the messiness of the world. But not also the world out there, but the world in here. The messiness of the church. In verses 31-34, through we get two more parables. And this is where our reading begins today. Jesus makes another vivid point about the kingdom of heaven. Though it appears small or insignificant or invisible even, it's growing. It's doing its work. It's there. It's like an itty-bitty mustard seed that has a massive tree within. 
It's like a little bit of yeast being gradually worked by small hands through 60 pounds of dough. It may be unglamorous. It may be seemingly insignificant, silly, foolish, but it is eventual and it is inevitable. It will grow. It will rise. Count on it. You'll see. That's what Jesus is saying. And from us, the kingdom will require, if this is true, a a, a kind of patience and a kind of upside-down value system compared to a world that just perennially fawns over the, the, the big thing or the next thing or the fast thing, none of which prove in the end to be the sure thing. The kingdom is the sure thing, Jesus is saying. Wait for it. He tells his disciple it's small in its beginnings. It's often deniable in its latent power. But it's patient and it's sure. And it is inevitable in its coming. Count on it. And this is something that informs our feeling and our even our, our, when we pray, our sense of like, our longing. It takes a kind of patience. A trust and a waiting. So let's just review really quickly these parables. We had two fields. Two small beginnings, and next we get the two treasures. And I think, and I mentioned this, but one rule of thumb when interpreting parables is this pay attention to what it stresses most. Like what's really obviously the stress point, like what it's stressing. In these two sentence parables that we get, the stress is on the undeniable value of the treasure that then inspires the radical joy the joyful response of the finder, the discoverer. So these stresses are on discovery and on value, on joy and and response. The guy who appears to be randomly digging around in other people's fields, I think, is overjoyed to the point of selling everything he has to buy that field and make the treasure his own. It's kind of a funny parable in that way. It's like, he didn't own the field, but he's digging around, or maybe he stumbled upon it. It's trespassing. I don't know how it worked back then, but it's interesting. The merchant then comes across the one pearl to rule them all, and he knows it's worth more than everything else he owns. What happens? Everything else is defined anew in the light of this treasure. Comprehensive. Coherent. As A.M. Hunter, a theologian, he put it, he said, this is wealth that demonetizes every other currency. Think about that. The kingdom represented by these two treasures, it's everything. It's costly to be sure, but it's worth the cost, undeniably. And the reason for this kind of radical divestment that these, these finders, these discoverers make, it's not fear or obligation, it's not religious compulsion, but it is this personal joy that it inspires in the one who finds it. And I want to just, for us, for just a moment to think about, if we're not experiencing it today, to think about the moment or the moments or the seasons of the joy we had in Jesus when we discovered how loved we are and how valuable it really is to live with something like this in a world that's so fractured and frail and fraught. It's important to, to just, you know, 
I, I think this is probably an important place for all of us, right, just to pause, to return to our discovery story. Ask ourselves this, what value do we ascribe to the kingdom right now? What joy does it inspire or not? If we've lost sight of this great undeserved gift that it is, the great hope that it offers us and the world, and the power it has to provide meaning and perspective in the ups and the downs of life, what's going to happen? Our joy will wane. But this joy is what Jesus wants for us. And that's what the enemy of our souls wants to suppress. Jesus is quick to point out that this joy does have an enemy, that the kingdom has an enemy. An enemy who wants to turn our hardships and our distractions and our uncertainties into a kind of tyranny, a veil. And if he can do that, he can obscure the value of the kingdom. And he can tempt us to put ultimate emphasis on things that steal our joy or on things that promise another kind of joy that might be fast, that might be easy, but that can't ultimately make good on the kind of joy that the kingdom brings. And then finally, Jesus finishes with an undeniably challenging parable. And we do well to listen to it. To listen closely, it's a bit of a reprise of the second field parable when weeds are finally separated from wheat in the kingdom. One day, he says, the kingdom will be sorted like fish in a dragnet. What does that mean? It means that those who have exploited the kingdom for their own ends, who have been building their own nearsighted, self-serving domains at the expense of peace, at the expense of the well-being of others, and the glory that belongs not to men but to God, these people... These systems, these situations, they will not be ignored or absolved. There will be a reckoning. And as is His way, like it or not, Jesus puts it in vivid prophetic terms. The outcome for those who dehumanize and demoralize, it will be a molar grinding grief. An astonishment, a shocking awareness that the will of heaven is cutting directly against their efforts once and for all. And this means that when the kingdom comes fully, the world will finally know what the world really ultimately longs for, the fulfillment of the hope we all carry, that ju- you know, justice that isn't compromised, dignity that isn't conditional, and leadership that isn't corrupted. Imagine that. And everybody knows, whether you're a Christian or not, that there are people, there are situations, there are systems from which we need separation, rescue, And Jesus says this is what we can expect. It's heavy news, but it's good news. It's impossible for us to say if Jesus' blazing furnace language means a kind of annihilation or a refining process or something else. We don't get a lot of detail. And I think we do well not to speculate too much. But this is prophetic language meant to provoke and challenge. It is a warning. And yes, Jesus did that quite often. We can't scrub that out and keep the parts we like. This is because, here's the thing, this kind of warning, this kind of care, it's what people who love and protect and rescue others do. It's what good kings do for their people. They tell the truth, even if it's hard to hear. So what do we do? 
with this, taking it all together, we, we must be vigilant and devoted. This prayer for the kingdom to come actually reminds us it should invoke some of this, this reality. Like This is what we're living in and living for. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. Friends, the kingdom, just in closing, a couple of closing thoughts. The kingdom is clearly more than the moral teaching of a novel rabbi. Jesus links the kingdom to history, his history, to Israel's history, to our history, because it's a story unfolding in the world. In other words, Jesus isn't merely offering people a better way to be better humans. Jesus is hijacking history in the name of love. For the kingdom, or rather he's taking it back from hijackers, from evil empire, from decadent culture, and even from bad religion. The kingdom is also more than a symbol of pop spirituality, bathed in soft platitudes, head in the clouds, sentimentalism. We know the kingdom has a prophetic history in flesh and blood, hands and hearts, in sacrifice and courage. And we're reminded of that every week at this table. Embodiment of the living God for the sake of the world and in the promise of a kingdom that will come and that is coming and that has come. And when I say we're reminded, let me be clear, we're not only reminded, and it's not merely through symbols. In Matthew 26, Jesus said the bread and the wine would be for us a singular connection to him, to the kingdom of heaven, and to a future even, in which he said that he will eat and drink with his disciples again in the kingdom of his Father. An event for which we long, an eventuality. And inevitability. So when we eat and when we drink today, He is with us. The kingdom is uniquely present to us and among us. And we are actually we're reinvigorated as the people through whom the kingdom comes. Restored to His will. Renewed for His calling. Patient, but urgent. Receptive willing, teachable, open, deep soil, placing deep value and experiencing deep joy. Lord, let this be true of us. Let this be true of us. I pray over hearts and over minds today that need the joy restored, that need to see the value of the kingdom. Those who are seeing the mountains, and I confess I was in very much in a space like this a month or so ago. I just could only see the problems. But Lord, you're teaching me, you're teaching us that we have something of much greater value and much greater power than the things that are immediately in front of us. The distractions, uh, the temptations, so God, just do this work in us as we receive from you today, as we receive the kingdom today with these hands, with our flesh and our blood, receive you, your body, your blood today. Your kingdom come and your will be done right here. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.